Gordon, Rhoda. Mike is hot. Rhoda. Rhoda, the mic is hot. Lick on the mic for us? I'm yeah, why N? I'm sitting here on your shoulder. Aww. She's my parent. That's right. Two weeks in a row, we've opened with Rhoda on Media Majors Cat. Yeah, it's a real Mary Tyler Moore cold open. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with having a dog on a podcast. Listen, I know this is an audio medium, but... Some things, some things transcend uh, the the boundaries of sense, Liam. Just like Legends of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahoo. Oh, what a fantastic movie we watched last night! Oh, good lord! I I left through half of it because your boy had work in the morning. You did. Uh, you also had work in the I morning, but watched work in the, the whole morning. movie. And man, that's a really good B movie. Uh, it's it. I'm more. I know what you're. I know what you're laughing at. I know uh. more of an owl movie. Yes, but no. It's like a very fun B movie. It's about a bunch of like anatomically Hold correct on a owls. We're not just gonna start the podcast by reviewing visionary director Zack Snyder, visionary <laughs> director of Batman v Superman, Dawn, Dawn of, of Justice. Justice. Yes. Hey. Zachary. Zachary. I'm going to call you whatever the fuck I want to, and it's definitely not going to be Zach. It's going to be Owlman. Oh, fuck, you directed that too! Misogyny. <laughs> what? That's Birdman. Uh, oh, Owlman is not the same as Birdman. <laughs> Owlman. No, Owlman is evil Batman. Oh, this no, is that's... actually... Apropos. Oh, right, because Night Owl is who I'm talking about because he's in Watchmen. I oh, apologize. Man. Turning him a nerd card. <laughs> I'll take that. Oh, now I'm going to eat it. Nom, <laughs> nom, 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 nom. It tastes like dewberries. Mm, it tastes like That's the, the sweat that you get on your game controllers when Ooh. you sweat out your palms. That's gross. Hey, what do we do on this Media Majors podcast? Generally, we just fuck around, but then sometimes a story is told in between the fuckery. That's true, and each week we center them around a theme. We'll talk I'm, about that in a second. Yeah, I'm <laughs> Tom Lockney, and I like to tell stories from the culture of video games and the internet. Uh, Senior Liam is what called I am movies, TV show, be thing talk about. All right, Yoda, chill the fuck out. Every week we center these stories around a theme, and this week the theme is Assassino. Or, uh, yeah, it's Ass Ass Nation is yeah. the theme. Yeah. <laughs> ass and Nation. Assassination. No chapter names this week for my story. This week, my story has a title How Batman Killed My Wife. <laughs> Are we talking about Batman Turkey? Batman, the caped crusader. He boasts a range of superhuman abilities that you and I will die before ever truly knowing. He has unbelievable strength and reflexes. He moves like a cat, quiet as the grave, yet strong as an ox. <laughs> he can turn into all these animals, too. Yes. Because he, because he's Beast Boy's son. He's what? You heard Whoa. it here first. <laughs> Fucking. <laughs> DC Comics, hire me. We've got a great pitch. Are you guys ready? Three oh, words. Man. Batman is Beast Boy's son. Now, I know that was more than three words, but aren't you glad? He also has the world's greatest mind. He's the world's greatest detective. There isn't a mystery he can't solve. There isn't a mystery he hasn't solved. I defy you to find one. Uh, Lindbergh baby. Uh, who killed Kennedy? Um... Where's where, Jimmy Hoffa? Where is the clitoris? <laughs> Batman sure doesn't know. Uh, two lefts on Hayward Street and then a right on Coronation And Avenue. if you hit the Enterprise on San Bernardino, <laughs> you've gone too far. If you end up at San Bernardino, you've gone too far. <laughs> but 
His most important power is that he's the member of the ruling class with access to unimaginable wealth that allows him to fight crime and not die, even though he is, yes, a human man. What? I thought he was a, some sort of living bat. Long as he reigned is one of the most popular comic book properties of all time, despite the fact that most of his cultural output is wildly inconsistent. He's, gone an un uh, he's undergone an identity crisis across all mediums. The man who was once simply Gotham's greatest detective has traveled through space and time. <laughs> sure has. Fought gods. Yep. Hated rock music. And, thought it was the devil's the devil's tones. And died and came back to life uh, multiple times, at least once as a Black Lantern zombie. He's also fought the Ninja Turtles, Judge Dredd, Captain America. Uh, he's about to meet Rorschach of the Watchmen. Yes. Oh, boy. Him and Archie uh, hang out mm, and, and kick it. And blow each other. Yeah. Although that's more on the online comics I've been reading. Those are canon. <laughs> but this is all on the pages of comic books. On screen, he's been a goofy, a goofy man, a dancer, a fascist murderer, a brooding edgelord... <laughs> A brooding edgelord chasing after his manic pixie dream girl. He's been all these things on film. But these often bizarre and contradictory realizations pale in comparison to how he's been portrayed in video games. For years, years and years and years and years. And years. Nobody knew what the fuck to do with <laughs> Batman. Yeah, he, they really did it. His first appearance is in a video game. It's a, it's like an 8-bit one, right? Was in 1986 on the Amstrad CPC in a game simply titled Batman, followed by Batman on the Amiga, followed by Batman on the NES, Batman on the Game Boy, Batman on the Genesis, Batman okay, on the cool. TurboGrafx-16, and what Batman about... Batman on arcade systems. Okay, cool, cool. And many others. Gotcha. So they really switched it up. Sometimes it was Batman. Sometimes it was Batman. Mm. I like it. Batman. Though these games vary in artistic design, structure, and quality, they have all shared one trait. They center around combat. Robin. Oh. <laughs> Tom said combat. <laughs> It is strange, though not unsurprising, that these games focused on fighting. At this point in Batman's canon, late 80s and onward, his stealth-like abilities were more of a punchline than a uh, centered modality. You know, how he, like, oh, Jim Gordon's talking, and he turns away from Batman for a second, and he turns back, and Batman isn't there. It's never not hilarious. It's rude and unhelpful, frankly. I think Batman. it's always funny. Yeah, this is the, this is the late 80s? Yeah, yeah. So this 80, is like... 89, I believe I said, was the first. Yeah. 86, 86. was the first. So Batman, a, a little bit of comic history. Batman wasn't quote-unquote cool until The Dark Knight Returns, which I think is a early Frank 80s. Miller Joy. I don't want to say his name, because if you say his name too many times, he'll come over and describe a city for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and, and, he'll uh, say something incredibly you know, Islamophobic. Okay, I've told... I, I, I love you, this you story. To, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, uh, uh, so Frank Miller, he writes a Batman story where Batman uses the R word, and DC basically goes <sighs> like... They go, we are done here, sir. So Frank Miller <laughs> gets an idea for a new Batman comic. Now, he's been watching the news, and Oh, he does not like this Isis. He's saying oh, Isis God. Gnosis. That's what I'm saying. So he writes a comic where Batman goes and just kills everyone in Isis. And he submits it to DC. And they respond with, no. You wrote a comic where Batman just kills a bunch of brown people. And then he said, fuck you. 
I'll change the superhero, and he printed it uh, independently, and it's called Holy Terror, and everyone said, this is garbage and racist. Yeah. And I don't think he's worked since. Oh, that was a fun, that was a fun mini story about how Frank Miller's a horrible, reprehensible person. But he, he is the first person who made Batman, quote unquote, unquote, cool, edgy, dark. Yeah. Well, I'm specifically more talking about, like, how Batman is as, like, is interpreted as a, a physical fighter versus yeah. as a sneaky boy. Exactly. And at this point, he's now becoming, like, big, br- broody McBruderson. Yeah. And even when he's we... He's fucking thick in The Dark Knight Returns. <laughs> yeah, Jesus he Christ. He is, like... He's diesel Wowzers. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, but when he is stealthy, even in these moments, the thing that, like, the audience is shown more often than not is not, like... Man actually sneaking around. Usually we'll see like a henchman get yanked from above frame up off and then he'll muffled scream or like he'll go another goon will go investigate. Oi, I'm gonna kill the Batman. What is he finding Michael Caine with his lower jaw missing? <laughs> Why do we get up the horse? <laughs> so yeah, like a like a somebody will go into a room and there will be like muffled bangs or whatever as they're taken out and then all the other goons are like and like shaking their flashlights at the doorway and then batman comes out and fucks him up like the focus is the focus is very much on like batman beating the shit out of people and not batman like being real spooky and and stealthy so Batman, the character, is thought of and treated as a one-man army. Additionally, a lot of these games were on home consoles, and stealth on home consoles like really was not like a viable mainstream game design in the 20th century. And like you do have franchises like the original Metal Gear start to tilt the dial towards stealth as an accessible mode of design. Most stealth at this time is one on PC and two from the first person. Stealth is considered like a very, uh, like almost like an interior genre where it, where there's a lot of games where the whole point is to feel like you, you literally, you are the one standing in the shadows. And so uh, lots of designers who are basing their game around stealth don't want it to like have that exterior shot where you can see everything. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot about the quote unquote immersion of the thing. And a big hurdle licensed games have to overcome is that they're often very safe. They pick an established successful genre. In Batman's case, the most common was side-scrolling beat-em-ups and follow its conventions to a T. So, yeah, just like the combination of Batman being a, uh, <laughs> yeah, great, great joke for this audio podcast. So, uh, And you'll never know what I did. <laughs> So just the combination of Batman being thought of as this like brutish hand-to-hand combat guy along with just the the dominant design trends of the time, that's why most of these games are about combat, not stealth. Yeah. Additionally, Batman, I think, I I touched on like uh, your viewpoint really affects like how you approach a game and Batman is totally a third person property. Yeah, like, it's it's it yeah. Playing first person Batman would be a nightmare. Yeah, I I mean like there are a lot of reasons that the Batman VR under the cowl thing was was stupid, but like one of the huge ones that I think got under talked about was that Batman isn't cool if you're under the cowl and seeing things from the perspective of Batman. It's it's just not. Yeah. So for the longest time, Batman's stealthy side is neglected. He runs punches and kicks but the dark knight spends most of his in-game time really in functionally broad daylight yeah (laughs) he loves that daylight then in the very late 90s give me that vitamin d and early 2000s 
third-person stealth on consoles takes off. Sure does. Metal Gear Solid comes out in 98, followed by Solid 2 in 01, and Splinter Cell releases yeah, in 02. Yeah, yeah, there we go. I think it's very important to touch on these uh, franchises, because like, regardless of what you think of them, uh, Splinter Cell is an insanely jingoistic uh, franchise. Good lord. Uh, you know what I remember today? In Splinter Cell Conviction, you beat up a black senator at the Lincoln Memorial. You like that's it's one of the, weird. the quote, fun interactive torture segments. Weird. Good lord. Weird and bad. Yikes. But they become franchises. Like Splinter yeah. Cell Conviction came out in like 2011 or, or 12. I, I can't quite remember. But I mean, and Metal Gear Solid is still continuing today with Metal Gear Solid Survive. Like these, these are franchises that were based around stealth, and that's really important because it means that uh, stealth, third-person stealth specifically, is considered like a fiscally viable option if you're a publisher who's giving developers money to make games. Which means that they're more willing to accept pitches from developers focused on stealth. And actually, to be honest with you, I think that uh, both Metal Gear Solid and Splinter Cell kick off what uh, is is like the new stealth renaissance of the early 21st century. So now it's the late 2000s and stealth is in vogue. Eidos Interactive has just acquired the Batman license. Additionally, they've just struck up a successful partnership with a new dev on the scene, Rockstar. Rockstar. Oh, fuck, I fucked it up. I knew it was either Rocksteady or Rockstar. In fact, Eidos has just published Rocksteady's first game, Urban Chaos Riot Response. The game is pure police brutality fantasy, but it gets positive, if not metered attention. It's one of those, like, 7 out of 10s where people are like, man, this game is not great, but it's very interesting. There's some, yeah, there's like some, it's the un unfriended effect. Yeah, it's got Although that. Although I'd give it that infector. a 6 out of 10. Rocksteady pitches Eidos on their take on Batman, and Eidos gives the A-OK. What if he's a bat? <laughs> Full production began in 2007, and Batman Arkham Asylum was released in 2009 to widespread acclaim. Woo-woo! The game's remembered partly for its take on the Batman mythos, but really the the important thing is the skeleton commercials. <laughs> Do you remember those? No, I don't. Oh my god, it was it because it was released around Halloween, or there was like a, a DLC around Halloween. And it was like Batman versus a bunch of skeletons. And so oh, they man, had skeletons doo-wop singing a damn bones, them bones, that like bone song yeah, while yeah. Batman beats. Oh, it was, uh, it, it's the reason that I got an Xbox and got that game. That's I was a like, this is so corny and amazing. But the two aspects that make the biggest waves are its stealth and combat systems. When surrounded by a group of foes, Batman enters into what is known as free flow combat. The system is actually pretty complex, but it can be boiled down to three different actions, attack, stun, and counter. It's more of a game of timing than placement or, or controlling the space like it's a lot of really intense, fun. engaged fighting games are. Really, all you have to do is like tap a button if if a bad guy has like a certain like icon over their head, that means they're going to hit you and you press the counter button and it'll when you press these buttons it just kind of pulls batman in a direction for you and smooths it out with like fun acrobatic animations it looks pretty slick and it holds up super fucking well yeah they're i remember i got arkham asylum and assassin's creed 2 at the same time uh and i returned assassin's creed 2 yeah and kept I, arkham asylum i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about it in a little more detail a little more relevant detail later but there's a reason that a lot of games copy the arkham formula yeah when Batman chose to be stealthy, however, things play out differently. 
Batman can use his mobility to grapple and climb around a room, dropping down when the time comes to strike. By holding down the right trigger, Batman crouches, moving as silently as his upright walk, though faster and sleeker. Press, That's really funny looking. Press the left face button, X or square respectively, while crouched behind an unaware enemy, and Batman performs a brutal, bone-shattering takedown. Stealth takedowns have always been a feature in stealth games, but I think that this is a really good execution and is, is super iconic. It, normally, I think it's like a very active uh, execution of executions. Oh, hell yeah. Waka, because normally... <laughs> Fozzie, what? <laughs> oh man, he came in there so quickly. Cause in, cause in like Splinter Cell or something, where you can come up behind a guy and like snap his neck or whatever, you you are crouched, but you just press a button. It's not like you hold down the trigger and you have to hold it the whole time you move, and then you press the thing. And, Batman... and the guy always says, "I vote Republican." <laughs> Sorry, I, that joke got in early in my head, and I was like, "Tom will appreciate this fuckery." <laughs> I did. Um, and also, there's a lot of like different animations. It really, it really relishes in in Batman like beating the fucking shit out of a guy. Sure does. Uh, in a way that I think a lot of other stealth games don't. It's very lovingly crafted in kind of a twisted way. These are the qualities of a Batman game, but they don't remain exclusive to that property for long. After the success of Batman Arkham Asylum, Rocksteady is purchased by Time Warner in February of 2010. Oh no. This means that Warner Brothers Interactive Publishing Company owns the assets, the engine, etc. The question remains, what will they do with them? Of course, Rocksteady continues to make sequels. We've all, we all know that. There's like four Rocksteady five actually games? did not uh, oh, do Arkham Knight. Uh, Origin, sorry. Uh, but with a successful formula for play, WBI wants to get something a little more out of this. In 2011, developer Monolith Productions begins work on a new Lord of the Rings game under Warner Bros. Interactive. In 2014, Middle-Earth Shadow of Mordor is released, and it bears the marks of a AAA-ass AAA game. Though it most readily recalls Ubisoft open worlds with parkour mobility systems, map-making towers, and a million billion million markers on a mini-map, the influence of Batman Arkham Asylum is undeniable. Boasting identical combat, the player can rip through the orc orcai. I don't know what's in Mordor, hordes with a tap of a button. Just stuff. There's just, like, things and doodads yeah. in Mordor. A lot of meat and pointy stuff. Yeah, it's filled with slick meat and pointy sticks. But... The combat really isn't what I've been interested at all in this entire story. Combat is standard fare in the game space. I want to talk to you about how it incorporates stealth. Oh boy. In fact, that's all I've wanted to talk about this whole time. I want to tell you how it introduces the concept of stealth and stealth kills. The game opens on Talion, the player character. Of course. A Gondor Ranger responsible for guarding the Black Gate of Mordor, shifting in and out of flashbacks. In the present, he fights the armies of Sauron, and in the past, he remembers a day with his family. <laughs> in between slashing orcs to bits, Talion thinks on training his young son in the ways of the sword. The players taught the basics of combat, and then we get to the good stuff, stealth. Back in the present, Talion has just cleared the high wall of orcs, and so his POV switches back to the past, where his wife walks by, holding their newborn child. Her back turned, she walks into the next room, and then a button prompt appears on the screen. Hold RT for stealth. While in stealth, press X to kiss your wife. 
Okay, like the idea is he's got like flowers behind his back and he wants to sneak up and surprise her because it's like their anniversary or some bullshit. But that's how they introduce the concept of stealth kills. First is of all, sneaking up behind a wife and then like button miming murder to to kiss her. So like, first of all, the surprise flowers. That's a mo- that's like a modern day thing. What is what do they do in the Middle Earth? What do they go to the local flower merchant and get professionally wrapped flowers? Oi, oi, showered today. <laughs> Would they have to take a magical subway train to Magical Central Park? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Secondly, don't stealth kiss your wife. <laughs> Don't you're gonna get your wife. You're gonna get hurt. She's gonna feel weird. She's holding a baby. That oh, can't man. be good. That's so weird. It's so weird. Yeah. Don't worry. She gets killed anyways. Because oh, games writers literally have no fucking idea how to motivate male characters without killing one of their women. Anyways, that's the story of how Batman accidentally caused one of the most video game ass video game moments of all time to happen. It's it's like up there with press F to pay respect. <laughs> Who's that from? That's from Call of Duty. Oh my god. Oh Best man. Have to pay respects. Right? Isn't that wild? Like all these Batman games that are like considered to be pretty terrible games and like have no idea what to do with the property, have all these like technological limitations and cultural limitations preventing them from being the thing that they could or should be. And then somebody makes a really good Batman game and then somebody's like, "Hey, you know how we should introduce murder? Quiet murder?" Kissing. Mmm. Smooch. Smoochies. Uh, when Seal sang about a kiss by a rose on the grave. Uh, it's actually a kiss from a rose on the grave. On the grave, sorry, It yeah. should be on the grave, which is a way better and lyric. more evocative lyric. Yeah, instead, everyone's like, Oh, man. Seal, what you doing? Uh, we're gonna take a quick break. I'm gonna go think about this for like eighteen thousand years. Yeah, I think it. I think it says a lot of things about the people who make video games. Video games. Uh, we'll be right back. But first, let's hear about another show on the network. Hey, Eric McAdams, it's me, Liam Senior. I am so hungover and feel very sick. Do you have anything you can give me? How about a weekly news roundup podcast where I tell you all the horrible news stories from the day, from politics to entertainment to anything else, maybe even some nice, fun, good stories. Who knows? I guess I'll just listen to the Sunday Morning Hangover Cure every Sunday on the Major Cast Network or wherever you get podcasts. That sounds like a good idea. Maybe, maybe listen to it and then take a nap. I'm dying. Hey, Liam, we're back. Tell me a story. Ronald Wilson Reagan is born on February 6, 1911 in Tampico, Illinois. He would go on to be president of the good old U.S. of A. He sure did. From 81 to 89, he was the poster boy of 80s conservatism. I would argue that he is still their poster boy today. Yep. Uh, I have a... I've got a dad who insists that Reagan was one of the good ones. Yeah, you do. Uh, His policies, such as Reaganomics, the war on drugs, and his stance on the AIDS epidemic, it was a bad one. 
a bad stance to have. Yeah, he and his wife were vocally homophobic. And he was also extremely racist. Uh, they've had lasting ramifications that are, we're st- honestly still dealing with. Mm-hmm. He was an incredibly terrible and evil politician who set us back as a country. We could talk about his pig-headed politics and dis- we could talk about his pig-headed politics and his disastrous social ideas until the cows come home. Mm-hmm. But that's not what I talk about on this show. No, see, I talk about the razzle-dazzle of good old lady show business. Oh, the glitz! It was too bright! The glitz and the glam! My eyes! And if I know one thing about Reagan, it's this. Motherfucker loved show business. Oh, boy. Part one. The Gipper. The Gipper. The Gipper. The Gipper. Who's the Gipper, Liam? Tell me. After graduating from Eureka in 1932... Oh, the the fun sci-fi town. What, that has a normal sheriff? It's a real... Town in California. Oh. I assume that it was just a UC school there. Uh, Reagan drove to Iowa, as you do, uh, to become a radio announcer at several stations. He actually then moved uh, to Chicago because he was an announcer for Chicago Cubs baseball games. His specialty was creating play-by-play accounts of games using basic descriptions. He he made up. He mainly commented on games while they happened. Yeah, yeah, Good yeah. for him. We're yeah. so proud. Uh, Congratulations! You you did the, the you did the most thing. Basic level of commentary. Well, he hit the ball. Well, that's it. I, I that's the I can say. Well, I, I'm Ronald Reagan, and I'm making the world's first reaction video. <laughs> you won't believe what this guy says when he watches baseball. Whoa! Silent for 15 minutes, but boy, does his mouth open. While traveling with the Cubs in California in 37, Reagan took a screen test that led to a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers Studios. He spent the first few years in Hollywood being uh, in a bunch of B-films, B-movies, just, you know, like... I've seen the picture of him and the monkey. Yeah. Uh, Reagan joked the producers didn't want them good, his movies. They wanted them Thursday. (laughs) He wasn't funny. He He earned his first screen credit... In a movie called Love is on the Air. Love is on the Air. That I get it. Yeah, it's not it. good. Uh, and by the end of 39, he had already appeared in 19 films with stars like... <laughs> Meg Ryan was in that movie. Right? Uh, he was in 19, up to 19 films in just two years with stars like Betty Davis, Humphrey Bogart, and criminal Errol Flynn, who is a uh, pervert and sex criminal. Listen to episode eight of this show. Yes. Um, In 1940, he played the role of George the Gipper, Gip, in a film, Newt Rockney, All-American. And from it, he acquired his lifelong nickname, The Gipper. Newt Rockney is my caveman name. Uh, (laughs) Nice. Uh, In 41, he was voted the fifth most popular star from the younger generation in Hollywood. He did a bunch of movies. He did one called King's Row that totally made him a star. Uh, but he and just as about he was b- gonna become like a huge huge star, good old war came and he joined every for active duty favorite in World War Two and he started a couple of movies afterwards. A lot of Democrats too. Um, but he just like after the war just couldn't like get anything to click. Uh, and he also was married before Nancy. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. In 1938, Reagan co-starred in a film called Brother Rat with actress Jane Wyman. They had two biological children together named Christine and Michael. Funny how you never hear about this from any Republican ever. It's funny how they keep this one under wraps. See, after the couple had arguments about Reagan's political ambitions, (laughs) uh, you see, you ready for this? Yeah. 
uh, Wyman was a registered Republican, and Ronald Reagan at the time was registered as a Democrat. I can believe it. They're both hacks. Both parties are just full of hacks. Uh, they filed for divorce in 48. They just couldn't agree politically. Mm. What a shame. When Reagan became president 32 years later, he had the distinction of being the first person divorced to be a president. Recently divorced. Really? Yeah. Again, a thing you'd think I would have heard about, especially He's, given well, a lot of the values of some of the people who have made my life a living hell. Unfortunately, someone has come to take in the crown. And that is <laughs> current Big Papa USA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tiny hands. I don't think that's a dispute. Though an early critic of television, Reagan landed a few roles in the 50s and decided to join the medium. He was the host of the General Electric Theater. Yeah, that's how long brands have been a part of things. General Electric owned a whole television show. Uh, he would tour General Electric, and he made a ton of money doing it for him. The show ran for nine years. He was a household name. He was everywhere because it was like, you got to watch the General Electric show to see what all the newfangled gadgets are. New I'm ovens, Ronald new Reagan. Well, tonight, which one's the General? Which one's the Electric? Well... That's mine, Nancy. Uh, in his final work as a professional actor, Reagan was a host and performer uh, from 64 to 65 on a television series called Death Valley Days. Reagan and future wife Nancy Davis appeared together on television several times, including an episode of General Electric Theater in 1958 that was called A Turkey for the President. You cannot make this stuff up. Part two, President Gipper. Reagan was first elected president of the board of directors at SAG in 1941. <laughs> Motherfucker was already a president. He was a president of something, and then later was like, oh, I'm gonna be a president of a bigger something. Still? And then he did. Yeah, he sure did, didn't he? Like a criminal. Like a criminal would do, yes. I consider Ronald We're a Reagan little a biased. <laughs> yeah. How many, how, I mean, like, how many gay people did his, died as a direct result of his policies? Watch. A whole fucking watch or read Larry Kushner's The Normal Heart, or do watch the celluloid in the closet, or do or One do a Google search, or talk to a person, talk to a gay person. Um, he was president of SAG basically for like ever, and was president of SAG during like really weird times. And future stories will do like the Taft Hartley Act, the uh, HUAC hearings, and the Hollywood blacklist era. Oh, I can't wait to talk. He met actress Nancy Davis. That's right, Nancy was also an actress. In 1949, after she contacted him in his capacity as president of SAG, uh, you see, she wanted, she had issues with her name appearing on a communist blacklist in Hollywood <laughs> because she had been mistaken for a different Nancy Davis. Uh... She described their first meeting by saying, I don't know if it was exactly love at first sight, but it was pretty close. Barf. Uh, nothing. Uh, they nothing. got married in 1952. They had two children, Patty and Ronald Ron Jr. Uh, observer, <laughs> observers. I actually didn't laugh at my goofed up word. I laughed at what's going to come next because it's going to ruin your day. Observers described the Reagan's relationship as close, authentic, and intimate. Uh, During his... <laughs> During his presidency, they reportedly displayed frequent affection for one one another. One press secretary said uh, they never took each other for granted. They never stopped courting. Hey, you ready for everything to just go to shit right now? You ready? Mike? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Mm -hmm. She called him Ronnie, and he called her Mommy. 
my uh, my dick just curled uh, up uh, and try to have and- an erection again. You can't. Uh, uh, you can't. Ronald Reagan called his wife mommy. I'm not trying to shame you if that is your thing. I'm just trying to shame Ronald Reagan. No, that's for being... that's weird. That's, that's weird. That's weird. Because it was open and in public. Because it's and because it's, it's not in the same connotation that people use the term like "daddy" for, which is like I mean we've talked about this. Yes. Like it's a it's a power dynamic thing, not like I forgot a that we've talked about thing. it, so I don't have to defend it. Yeah. <laughs> It's weird. It's weird that he said that. Even Mike Pence has the veneer of <laughs> mother. Mike Pence. Mike Pence definitely wants to fuck his mom, and so sure. does Ronald Reagan. Apparently, I guess so. Good lord. And as I talked about, and I feel like it just needs uh, saying again. Reagan began as a Hollywood Democrat. Franklin D. Roosevelt was a hero of his, but then he became a Republican. Uh, after serving for the Goldwater campaign in 64. Man, it's he, almost like Democrats stand for nothing except money and politeness. Um, he became governor of California after that, and he, went, he then worked his way up to the presidency. Part three, Darth Gipper. On March 23rd, 1983, Reagan announced a plan, a plan to counter impending nuclear doom. The Strategic Defense Initiative was a proposed missile defense system intended to protect the U.S. from attacks by ballistic nuclear weapons. Do you think Trump still thinks that we still have that? Do you think he thinks we have that? Uh, I don't. I don't because I I know how the story ends. <laughs> Um, The Strategic Defense Initiative Organization was set up in 1984 within the United States Department of Defense to oversee development. A wide array of advanced weapon concepts were tried. Were tell me, uh, tell me a thing or two. They tried to make uh, a... weapon concepts, Liam. Oh, including lasers. <laughs> okay. Okay. Particle beam weapons. Um, and space-based missile systems. You know how people were like, the Nazis are so crazy because they've got, uh, like supernatural bullshit and stuff, like. We tried to make fucking particle beams in the 60s, like like Fallout. 80s. 80s. Oh, God. Uh, Tama gets worse. There was also going to be a ring of hundreds of satellites just in space to control. Yeah, you know. You know. Not like not like weird global fascism. How you doing, U.S.? Okay, I like that you're focusing on like the, the political, the, the ramifications and, of the fucking thing. And you're not laughing at how they were like, we're gonna make a bunch of space shit, which like... Science has proven, oh, that cannot be done. We've given up on that. The, the only reason that Elon Musk is doing it is because he's an he asshole with billions of dollars. And what he's bored. piece of shit. Give that money to people on the earth and solve concrete problems. Elon Musk. <laughs> so much concrete problems. The roads are a nightmare. Oh, boy. Waka waka again. I fell into another pothole. I'm um, people were Dusk. People were so skeptical. People were so skeptical of this that they immediately called it Reagan's Star Wars defense. <laughs> because it was super duper, uh, super duper absurd. And yet it scared Russia so bad well i mean yeah because because the u.s i mean like russia not great not great i am not a tanky but like 
it is super bizarre that we were going to be like, yes, we will have the ring, we will have nukes and a ring of satellites around the entire globe, so that way no nukes can touch us. Like, we're some fucking they, super villain. They probably only wanted it on, over America, but like hundreds of satellites. I mean, functionally, space, functionally, functionally exactly they're going to have to be a space identical. apart. It's going to yeah. be, they're going to be all around. Well, yeah, yeah and, and I, like, the, the purpose is identical is that we've got nukes and we've got technology that can functionally disable all of your nukes and we're just gonna make it we're america and we're the good guys hey america are we the baddies are we the baddies i've been saying that a lot on my podcasts lately because yikes uh slick willie ended the program in the in the 90s but man we almost had a space army under actor ronald reagan part four clipping the gipper Okay, so this happened pre-Star Wars, but, like, this is easily the most important thing that's ever happened to Ronald Reagan. John Warnock Hinckley Jr. was born May 29th, 1955, in Ardmore, Oklahoma, U.S. If you know this story and you heard that last name, a bunch of people listening just went, <gasps> I don't. Oh. So I didn't. And you're from the District of Columbia. You lived in D.C. and you don't know this story. Yeah, my dad's a Reagan Oh, Republican. this is great. Yeah. This is so great. So in 1975, Hinckley Jr. moved to Los Angeles in the hopes of becoming a songwriter, much like Charles Manson. Um, his efforts were unsuccessful, and he wrote to his parents with tales of misfortune and pleas for money. He also spoke to a, of a girlfriend, Lynn Collins, who turned out to be a total fabrication. In 76, he returned to his parents' home in Evergreen. During the late 70s and 80s, Hinckley began purchasing weapons and practicing with them. He was pres prescribed antidepressants and tranquilizers to deal with emotional issues. Who boy. <laughs> you know what? If I had to take a wild guess, I would say that didn't make things better. Mm -hmm. uh, Hinkley... Oh, man, I'm feeling kind of low today. Time to take my tranks. Hinckley became obsessed with the 1976 film Taxi Driver. Uh where Robert De Niro tries to... Oh, that... Okay, hold on. I need to take this again because it's super important. I didn't realize it. Hinckley became obsessed with the 1976 film Taxi Driver, in which disturbed protagonist Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro, plots to assassinate a presidential candidate. Hinckley developed an infatuation with actress Jodie Foster, who played a child prostitute in the film. She was 12 years old at the time, and he became obsessed with her. Uh, cool guy. When Foster entered Yale University, Hinckley moved to New Haven, New uh, Connecticut for a short time to stalk her. He enrolled in a Jeez. Yale writing class, began slipping poems and messages under Foster's door, and repeatedly called her. Um, and did the police do anything about this i uh from what i read she just kind of was like i don't care about this like she just didn't give a shit that's what that listen, really that's what uh, she she you, it i i think that it, i i honestly think that just like she was just focused on college at that point so it just became another because when she talks about know. this she's literally just like I, I, I don't. He, that's right. No, that's right. That's the thing. I, I'm just, she, like, I, she I never just, met I'm just him. surprised because I don't think I've ever met a single person, especially women who've been stalked, who were like, oh man, what a crazy time in my life. Well, no, I mean, I don't think she was thrilled about it, but I honestly don't think, like she doesn't, when it's brought up around her, she's just like, yep, yeah, I get, like the thing that happens to Hinkley kind of outshines all of this. Mm -hmm. And you'll see what I mean. 
so he tried to figure out a scheme to get her attention because he, he she you know he couldn't even he was very bad at stalking like he couldn't get her attention I, I he was messed up i think he was on tranquilizers the whole time so he probably <laughs> slipped like scribbled notes that didn't make any sense under the wrong door i'm on tranquilizers so, help me and some like student named ryan was like who keeps scribbling this whack shit and leaving it under my door but eventually he settled <laughs> he clutched my knee out of fear Tom, don't worry. The story doesn't get too scary. Oh, thank God. Failing to develop... Uh, Eventually, he settled on a scheme to impress her by assassinating the president, thinking that it would achieve a place in history and would appeal to her. He trailed President Jimmy Carter from state to state but was arrested in Nashville on firearm charges. Penniless, he returned back home. Despite psychi- uh, psychiatric treatment for depression, his mental health did not approve, improve. He began to target the newly elected President Ronald Reagan in 81. Um... Hinckley wrote to Foster just before his attempt on Ronald Reagan's life. Over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you'd develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, pretty sure that never happened. I think, you know, delusions of grandeur. Yeah, yeah. So this is the original sliding into the DMs. Uh, basically, yeah. Sliding into your mailbox. And Jodie Foster at this point probably got, like, so much fan mail because she was, like, a bona fide star. Ah. Uh, the story is so strange, Tom. Mm-hmm. Although we talked on the phone a couple times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. The reason I'm going ahead of this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. John Hinckley Jr. Oh my god. Are you ready for this? Tom, this is about to get fucking weird. Yeah. On March 21st, 1981, new President Ronald Reagan and his wife Nancy visited Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Really? Reagan recalled, I looked up at the presidential box above the stage where Abe, uh, Abe Lincoln had been shot at... Uh, I looked up at the presidential box above the stage where Abe Lincoln had been sitting the night he was shot and felt a curious sensation. I thought that even with all the Secret Service protection we now had, it was probably still possible for someone who had enough determination to get close enough to the president to shoot him. On March 28th, Hinckley arrived in Washington, D.C. by bus and checked into the Park Central Hotel. He noticed Reagan's schedule that was published in the Washington Star, such a smart idea, and decided it was time to act. At 2.27 p.m., Reagan exited the hotel through the President's Walk and its T Street Northwest exit towards his waiting limousine as Hinckley waited within a crowd of admirers. The Secret Service had extensively screened those attending the President's speech. In a colossal mistake, the agency allowed an unscreened group to stand within 15 feet of him. They were really bad at doing their jobs, apparently. Hi, we're the the open Secret Service. Unexpectedly, Reagan passed right in front of Hinckley. Believing he would never get a better chance, Hinckley fired uh, a gun six times in about a second, missing the president with all six shots. Did he hit any bystanders? The first bullet hit White House Press Secretary James Brady in the head, and the second hit District of Columbia. I think it grazed his head. Oh, okay. uh, District of Columbia police officer Thomas Delahanty in the back of his neck as he turned to protect Reagan. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Hinckley now had a clear shot at the president, but the third bullet overshot him and hit the window of a building across the street. Uh, As special agent in charge, Jerry Parr quickly pushed Reagan into the limousine. The fourth bullet hit Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy in the abdomen as he spread his body over Reagan to make himself a target. Uh, The fifth bullet hit the bullet-resistant glass of the window and the open door of the limousine. The sixth bullet... I could... I'm sorry. I could never be a Secret Service agent because I'd, like, beef up and be like, yeah, I'm, like, I'm I'm the big boy and I'm going to be the target here. And then the guns would come out and I'd be like, all right, later. (laughs) Bye. 
Uh, the six and final bullet ricocheted off the armored side of the limousine and hit the president in the left underarm, grazing a rib and lodging in his lungs, causing it to partially collapse and stopping less than an inch from his beating heart. Oh, man, we came so close to things getting better. Parr's prompt reaction had saved Reagan from being hit in the head. After the shooting, Alfred Antonucci, a Cleveland, Ohio labor official who stood nearby Hinckley, was the first to respond. He saw the gun and hit Hinckley in the head, pulling the shooter down to the ground. Within two seconds... Uh, Agent Dennis McCarthy dove onto Hinckley as he threw him to the ground. You can rest your knee against mine. That's okay. Mm. <laughs> Dead top protecting Agent Robert Wanko. <laughs> this is a stupid name. I'm so sorry. Uh, took an Uzi submachine gun from a briefcase to cover the president's evacuation and deter a potential group attack. What the fuck? What? Okay. D- wow. They. All right. You're from DC too, Liam. Oh, yo, man. An you Uzi in a briefcase. You know what happened one time? Yeah, yeah. They. The Secret Service has carried around Uzis for a very long time. Um, a fun thing that happened to my brother when he visited the White House on a field trip as a child uh, was a was a man tried to storm the gates. This was the guy who tried to storm the gates and did not make it to the White House. Uh, because the Secret Service came out, and my brother was like, a, a man came out of a manhole! <laughs> How apropos. The assassination attempt was captured on video by a ton of cameras, including all the big three networks. They aired the footage immediately. Uh, Hinckley asked the arresting officers whether the Knights Academy Awards ceremony would be postponed because of the shooting, and it was. The president survived surgery with a good prognosis. Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity on June 21st, 1982. Following his lawyer's device, Hinckley declined to take the stand in his own defense. <laughs> yeah, fair. On September 10th, 2016, Hinckley was permi- permitted to permanently leave the hospital to live with his mother full-time under court supervision with mandatory psychiatric treatment. Uh, the assassination attempt was what was really difficult for Jodie Foster. She was hounded relentlessly by the media during it uh, because, you know, she- Hinckley was a target of her disp- uh, uh, obsession. Foster has only commented on the Hinckley in three occasions, a press conference a few days later, an Esquire magazine article she wrote in 82, and during an interview with Charlie Rose uh, in 1999. She's canceled a lot of interviews because of it, as she should. She literally had nothing to do with it. Uh, yeah, it, don't it, fucking it talk to her about it. It literally couldn't possibly be her fault. There, she way, is so remotely. He didn't even. He didn't even say in the letter, "I'm going to kill the president yeah. for you." He just said this attempt. Like w- that could mean anything. So you lived really close to this hotel. Oh, really? Yeah, you lived about ten minutes away. Um, it's a Hilton. Most people in D.C. colloquially refer to it as the Hinkley Hilton, or mm. just the Hinkley. As you can see, having an actor be the president is probably not the greatest idea we've come up with, but politicians are bad too, so let's burn the White House to the ground. <laughs> and that is Ronald Reagan's show business life. You know, he really he really is, I mean, like all Republicans and, and most of American culture is the precursor to Trump, but like Ronald Reagan in particular is definitely a precursor to Trump. Like... Even right now, Trump is talking about welfare. He says, "Oh, we're he gonna." He met with Henry Kissinger today. We're gonna talk about welfare. We're gonna we're gonna cut back on welfare, which doesn't mean anything because there's no program actually called welfare. It's just programs, different programs aimed towards uh, the disadvantaged in our society. And a lot of the rhetoric that Trump is using comes from Reagan going around workshopping his speech, where he. Uh, 
invokes oh gosh i can't remember her last name but i believe the the figure he picked was linda a white woman and he was like oh she scanned the system used a hundred names and 30 addresses and she got a hundred thousand dollars and in workshops of that speech he goes around saying like welfare it's bullshit like you sit behind some young buck which like if you know anything yeah. about racialized terms in america uh buck buck specifically referring to young black Sorry, men you said buck buck <laughs> yeah like all all i mean all this shit that is currently modern trump and his his, his entertainment idiocy politicized i guess you could call it or taken to the political sphere begins with reagan and it i mean like all Ends these with the world oh, on fire God. so sometimes we talk about horrible heinous awful stuff and we like to balance it out by talking about not horrible heinous awful stuff in a segment we like to call the self-care corner tom did you think of anything <laughs> my car got back from the shop <laughs> you want to take that one again because I, I don't think you should absolutely not my car got back from the shop you know how it's a horrible annoying pain in the ass and it's a uh, uh weight upon your life when the car is in the shop yep well my car has had a don't tell the insurance companies this, but my car has had a ding in it for a while. A while. A not, while. I should say, not my fault. It was I was not in the car. Um, you were on top of the car, mm, going surfing. faster, daddy, faster. And it finally got fixed, which is satisfying because I haven't been able to open the passenger side door from the outside for months and months. A luxury. And it finally got fixed, and it's so nice. And when I got it back from the shop, I just sat in the garage. And, and this is not a joke, opening and closing the passenger side door because it just felt good to do. That's my self-care corner for this week. Liam, what's yours? When I sit on the other side of the apartment from Rhoda and say, Red Rover, Red Rover, have Rhoda come over, she runs into my lap without fail. I just have to <laughs> say Red Rover now, and she does. So it's I'm so literally living on cloud nine. It, I died. If you need me, I'm dead. This is a, a ghost podcast now. I've left my corporeal form. I am simply energy. This is terrifying. I was and was always and have ever been always wow, been. Wow, this is just like Netflix original movie, Spectral, about the army fighting ghosts. Oh, good reference. <laughs> Thank you. Even as an energy form, I'm going to make fun of your bad <laughs> Netflix joke. All right, thanks for listening to another episode of Media Majors. You're welcome. Uh, rate and review on iTunes if you like the show. It oh, actually, Tom, I, there was one more thing I wanted to get. I, I saved this because I thought this was really funny. Uh, we, hold on, keep doing the plugs because it goes with the plugs. Email us at mediamagerscast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mediamagerscast. Check out the other shows on the network, such as the filmographers, Big Time Whoopsies. That's anime. Sunday Morning Hangover Sunday Cure. Sunday Morning Hangover Cure. And King Me, my podcast. Um, About kings. <laughs> ah. We got an email from Eunice Manthey. At mauriciokluki at gmail.com. Yeah. Subject, booking the largest selection of hotels. <laughs> Message body, booking. The largest selection of hotels, homes, and vacation rentals. You'll always find the guaranteed best price. Details here. So thanks, Eunice. Just wanted to give a shout, shout out, out to, to Eunice. Eunice. Yeah, she's really looking out for us. Uh, follow uh, the Major Cast Network on Facebook for updates on all of the shows on the network. Woo! Yeah, I think that's it. That's As it, always, we'll be there for you.
Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major. <laughs>